You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am here with my producer, Scott Drockelman. What's happening? Like, are we doing a, a Q&A or? We're doing a Q&A. We are going Who to says- overthrow the podcast government. We have a Q&A today. The Q&A today is an important one. It's how do I get sober as a nurse, right? Like this is a profession where there's so much trust involved, there's boards, there's all kinds of things. How do I get sober as a nurse? Ashley, I'm not a nurse. But what would <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. Don't have me do anything medical for you okay. outside of band-aids. Okay. I can do that. You can. Okay. Good. So a lot of nurses struggle with substance use and everything from just a little bit out of control to full-blown alcoholism. It is very, very common. We see it all the time. We have a very high population of all different types of nurses who come wanting to get help. There are more or less two typical paths to getting help as a nurse. One is through the board with the board, basically, you know, some sort of discipline and then they follow along and there's accountability, et cetera, et cetera. And you are at risk of licensure issues. By the time you get there, typically you have done enough to get their attention. They have evidence. So it, it, it has to be pretty escalated to get to that point. The other path that is much kinder and smoother is getting help before you get to dealing with the board. Nurses are first responders and they are often experiencing a war zone on a daily basis. They see people at their worst moments of their life. They are asked to support emotionally the chaos that is going on with patients, more so than even the doctors are who are in and out. It is completely understandable and reasonable that nurses who have limited time, they have crazy schedules, are looking for quick relief and a way to decompress. And they don't have a lot of time to do that. They don't have a lot of time to to decompress. So they have the easiest thing is a substance that helps you decompress. And often it starts off very, I use the word innocently in the sense that everybody's just having a drink, a cocktail here or there, whatever. But then it starts to become more and more of a tool, a necessary tool to decompress. And then it becomes the only tool to decompress. Now, in a lot of these situations in that first path, your close friends and family may not even know that you're over drinking or they would say, oh yeah, she drinks heavily or oh, she's partying or she goes out with the nurses every night or whatever it is. Like, There's a lot of bouncy language that we can use to justify the fact that the drinking is increasing and that there are these cravings for it and it, it occurs in your head And you think, oh, I could really use a drink. Oh, you know, like it's more often you're waiting until the end of your shift kind of deal. You look forward to that day every day or that time. So you're becoming more and more reliant on that 
as a coping mechanism, it's highly unlikely that it's causing major problems at work. So if that's the case, and I'm in that situation, like, how do I even identify that I might have a problem with this? Because it's not affecting my work yet. Uh, Nobody knows about it. So I'm obviously I'm covering, right? Like I'm, it's not a problem yet. What would be indicators that would tell me that like, maybe things have progressed to a different level? Major indicators would be when you feel huge emotions about stuff that happens at work, that your brain automatically goes to, oh God, like I can't, I can't wait for a drink or I can't wait for whatever it is. Like the messaging in your brain from this was so painful, this was so overwhelming, this was so emotional to I need a drink, it starts to get faster and faster and closer and closer together. That association is the thing that starts to increase and then it becomes reliant and then it becomes a need and then it becomes an addiction, right? Some of the signs would be you think to yourself, if I stopped drinking, I would have no joy in my life. I would never have fun. Hangovers at work, forgetting things, finding yourself, making shortcuts or things like that so you can go early. Less ability to invest and and care in your craft. And an overall sense that the most enjoyable part of your week is the time you get to drink too much. What if there's like a social element to this, right? Like it's really important that I get along with the people that I work with in the milieu, like in the on the floor, or on the wherever. Like how am I supposed to like operate with those people if I'm having to go down a path that is so different from them and I'm like doing something that is taking me away from that group? Like how is that supposed to work? Well, there's often a social aspect to it. It's kind of how we tend to get started usually. That can be very confusing for people because they're comparing themselves to the people they've opted to drink with. And that's not always a good representation of a healthy relationship with alcohol. These are skills that one learns and dissects in treatment. But the reality is that each situation and set of tools that somebody learns in treatment matter. So I'll give you a quick, quick example. Let's say that you have somebody who has an incredible group of nurse friends and they like to drink, but they're not problem drinkers. You're struggling with that, but this group is not. And they do lots of other things in therapy and treatment and through discovery of and picking apart what coping skills you would use. You might discover that you can organize activities with these same people that they're willing to do and that don't require that don't have drinking you may be able to change the activity or plan a new activity that allows you to stay in that social group sometimes that social group all have problem drinking and so being a part of it is unhealthy and so there has to be there have to be changes there but not always and so i think that's where the individuation and the working with someone on figuring out what would be best for your particular recovery. And it's not permanent in the sense that you never are going to go out again. You're never going to have fun. You're never going to go to the bar. You're never whatever. Like a lot of the time it's taking a break and, and, and figuring out what's what. And when you take 30 days off drinking and you notice, oh my gosh, I'm really reliant on that to do my job. Like I can't, 
I can't function with this level of trauma and stress if I don't have this. Or I really don't like this group of people unless we're drinking. You can go down the list of things. Your info gathering by taking the time to stop drinking and evaluate and and see how you feel, see what your life looks like, see who wants to hang out with you, so on and so forth. That is part of the info gathering that you do that leads to great and healthy self-care decision-making. Let's say that I wanted to explore this a little bit. I guess my biggest hesitation, my biggest fear, maybe if I was putting myself in the shoes of somebody who is doing this work every day is like, how could I possibly find something that would replace this? Like, uh, there's some level of like numbing that I have to do to myself in order to do this work, I have to have some detachment in a way in order to continue to do my job effectively. So like, how am I supposed to do that? What, what could I possibly put in place that would would give me that kind of relief? Well, it's a great question because the answer is that you learn tools and you you work with people to figure out how to do that. It's super normal that you wouldn't know how to manage that level of, of stress and trauma and emotional upheaval on a day-to-day basis. It's not It's not a normal circumstance. And so what you're asking is, how do emergency room doctors, how do firefighters and police officers and prison guards and soldiers, what you're asking is, how can one possibly go through what all of you go through and not drink on a daily basis? And the answer is many, many of them do. And there are lots of different ways to decompress and find time, but it requires you to ask for help. It requires you to learn therapeutic skills to deal with trauma because you're watching trauma. And so it's called secondhand trauma. Secondhand trauma is real. And so if you're watching trauma and you're having secondhand trauma on a weekly basis and you don't have any other skills but alcohol, then I get it. That's why you're doing that. But the fact that you don't know the skills and it's not intuitive on how to handle that does not mean that they don't exist. And learning those skills is part of the therapeutic process and going and asking for help. I have this stress. I have this trauma. I see this on a daily basis. I need support and skills for how to manage it. What would be my first step if I were considering this? So I would look into outpatient treatment because that would be something that is going to address both the substance use and the mental health aspect. And you're going to learn skills and how to replace alcohol and figure out what it is that your life in particular with your particular profession, specialty, et cetera, what will work. I know for us, for for Line Rock Recovery, when you call the main line, our admissions counselors, almost all of them are in recovery themselves or have some sort of very close experience. And they have worked with so many different types of nurses and can talk about about what it is they've seen help and can help them figure out what the next steps are. But the first step is picking up that phone and making the phone call. Okay, so I have to imagine that another piece, another problem with this is like, you know, oftentimes the shifts are kind of like strange hours, right? Like I might be in a second shift type situation. I might be overnight. How am I supposed to just put aside like a very stressful career, a a lot of expectations? Like how am I supposed to just put that aside and go get help? Like what, when is that supposed to happen? Like when am I supposed to have time to be able to do that? Totally. So I can't speak to a a lot of the other programs. I'm, I'm sure there are some, but I know that at Lion Rock, we have 
such amazing flexibility. So we have for every time zone, for every schedule, I think we start at 5 a.m. and go till 9 p.m. And that's the starting time of, of, you know, every single day, including on the weekend. And you're able to access group and individual and all the assessment stuff from your home computer and have privacy around it. I mean, we have some people who they don't tell anyone that they're doing it. They don't tell their husband or wife. They do it, you know, after their husband or wife goes to work or in the middle of the day, you know, they they are able to make the schedules work for them. You know, it works for emergency room doctors. It works for pilots, people who have these schedules that are ever-changing. What's what's one last thing that you wish people would know who find themselves in this situation? I wish people knew that all of us learn coping skills and we are not born with them. We learn them. And it's okay if you don't know how to process these wild and crazy things that happen back to back to back to back to back. Even over-drinking or causing problems in your life. If drinking is causing problems in your life, then you may have a drinking problem. You don't have to worry about the label of alcoholism. If drinking is causing problems, then you may have a drinking problem. And it's okay to go and seek help and support for that problem. Many, many nurses are doing it and they're not talking to other people about it. I hope that our first responders, our nurses, our healthcare workers, our police and our fire become more and more willing to seek help because there's so much help out there for them. And there are so many of us who want to help. So reach out. You can find us at lionrockrecovery.com or you can call 800-258-6550. Give us a call. Everyone is wonderfully nice. And the worst case scenario is that you have a nice call and you hang up and you do nothing. You can also live chat with the admissions counselor for free. Check it out. Just have a conversation. I think most people are afraid to take that first step to even having a conversation and that's everything. So please, please reach out. We want to help. All right, friends, I'll see you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.